Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Southern Spectre Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah, as always. Unfortunately, due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, Lexi and I were not able to record this week. So instead, in light of all that has happened this week, because it's been quite a thrill ride for most of the world, um, the weather here in the South currently is raining. The temperatures dropped, and it seems quite the perfect fit uh, for a somber mood that the world has experiencing right now. Russia is currently at war with Ukraine, and so I thought I would divert from our regular scheduled program to bring you something a little bit more upbeat. The world needs a little hope right now. Ironically, we sit possibly on the brink of nuclear warfare. And so, with that being said, I thought I'd share with you an episode of my other podcast, the Southern Spoonful Podcast. So what you're going to hear is as follows, is the Southern Spoonful trailer. And then you're going to hear one of my personal favorite episodes of the Southern Spoonful. So if you like what you hear, let me know. I'd, I'd love to play these more here on this on this station. So if you like what you hear, let me know. Uh, don't forget, uh, we will be back next week with our normal programming. Uh, me and Lexi have intended from the last two episodes, we talked about some strange phone calls. And so in further research we will actually be dialing some of those phone numbers that we had discussed last episode in our next episode so i hope you guys tune in for that don't forget to follow us on social media you can follow us on facebook at the southern specter podcast you can follow us on instagram at the southern specter and you can find us on TikTok at the Southern Spectre Podcast. And don't forget to call our now new number, the Haunted Hotline, 704-666-3017. That number again is 704-666-3017. We'd love to hear from you guys. Any comments, feedback, or scary stories you have, feel free to call and leave that and we'll share it here on the show. So until I see you all again next week, please enjoy this episode of the Southern Spoonful Podcast. And remember, take care of each other and stay spooky. The story of how the South came into existence is about as long as the Edisto River and twice as deep as the Atlantic. For those unfamiliar, the Edisto River is the nation's longest free-flowing natural black water river, South Carolina's own Black Beauty. Almost as dark and just as wild as the stallion Anna Sewell once imagined, the South is made up of several different types of land and regions. Mountains, beaches, marshes, desert-like flatlands, hills, valleys, lush green fields and forests. Some of these regions have become successful booming meccas that thrive on their food, attractions and locale. 
Then there are those regions that time has seemingly forgotten altogether. Trees here, behemoths of their domain, some as old as time itself. Rivers flowing wild and just as free as the human spirit. Forests thick as thieves and so rich John D. Rockefeller would be envious. Marshlands filled to the brim with pluff mud, sea salt, and all manner of sea life. Welcome to the South. More specifically, South Carolina. Known to some as the keystone of the South Atlantic seaboard. Others may know it as the Sand Leper State, while others refer to it as the Palmetto State. And many, like myself, simply know it as home. One of the many accolades of the South is the food and for good reason. South Carolina is the birthplace of sweet tea and barbecue. Both are staples known to every dinner table and palate throughout the South. Somerville, South Carolina is known as the birthplace of sweet tea. Now, sweet tea has always been a bit of a conundrum for me. Not the tea itself, but the process we use to create the soothing elixir. We boil the tea to extract the flavors, add ice as we refuse to consume it hot, add enough sugar to sweeten to taste, finally add a slice of lemon to sour it down. With a concoction such as this, best enjoyed on a hot summer day and made for sipping and just as smooth as velvet, who needs understanding? Now barbecue has been around before the settlers came. It was the Native Americans that taught the settlers the secrets to cooking whole hog over a fire. Always low and slow, ensuring to utilize every piece of the cob roller from the rooter to the tutor. One thing that most Southerners can relate to more than anything else is their mama's kitchen. Southern mamas and their kitchens have always held some otherworldly bond between each other. The Southern mama can command the frying pan, strong-arm the cast iron, overthrow the oven, beat the hell out of any deviled eggs, and whip up most anything the imagination can create. The southern kitchen has been the inspiration for a number of things, including some of the South's most popular culinary dishes, TV shows, magazines, books, and podcasts. The history of the South has not always been kind. It's riddled with strife, grief, guilt, pain, suffering, oppression, wrapped in injustice, and often soaked in blood. The Latin phrase, Dum Spiro Spero, is carved on the right-hand side of the South Carolina seal and translates to while I breathe, I hope. Hope. It's something we all could use a little of right now. And as any Southern mama will tell you, a little goes a long way. The Southern Mama is a pioneer in her own right, and that's exactly who this show is all about. The people who made the South what it is today. This is for all the mamas, the papas, the sons and the daughters, the fighters, the forgers and those that march forward, the singers and songwriters, chefs and the gardeners, the innovators, the farmers, the leaders and activists, the cultures and the artists. The movers and the doers, the start-something-newers, the thinkers and the bricklayers, those who stood against the naysayers, the brewers and distillers and the never-sit-stillers, the shakers and bakers and the made-a-few-mistakers, thank you for the sacrifices you've made and all that you've done and all that you continue to do. 
So please, I invite you to find a seat at the dinner table and prepare for a heaping helping from the Southern Spoonful. We went to, to Ireland, and just to give you an idea of kind of how our brains work, you know, you're in a sort of touristy town, and everybody within our group wanted to go to a pub, you know, and so we see one, and it's, it's very fancy, very clean, it's got a Coors Light, you know, <laughs> neon sign in the window, and everybody's like, oh, let's go, and I look at this dark alley, and I'm like, no, I'm going that way, <laughs> and my wife, we, we were barely friends at the time, we just met, and uh, she's like, yeah, let's go. And so we take off down this dark alley, you know, the pavement turns to cobblestones and the ceiling gets, you know, low to the point where you can reach up to it. And there's this creaky little door. And so we duck into this really dark, dank hub and uh, everybody just kind of stops and looks at us. It's like, this is where we belong. Welcome, everyone, to the Southern Spoonful Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Hudson, and thanks for stopping by. On today's show, we'll take a trip through the South Carolina Low Country to the small community of Meggett near Edisto Island as we make our way to the Roxbury Mercantile. It's located on your left just before crossing onto Edisto Island. But first, please find you a spot at the supper table and prepare for a heaping helping from the Southern Spoonful Podcast. The Roxbury Merchantile is owned and operated by husband and wife, Jacqueline Barnwell, also known as Jackie, and William Barnwell, who's also referred to as Bo. I turn into the parking lot and make my way to the front entrance where I'm greeted with a smile from William. Even though it's only 8.30 in the morning, Jacqueline and William are already hard at work prepping for the day ahead. I ask William, does he go by William or Bo? William says his family and friends call him Bo and have done so since he was knee-high to a duck. I stick with William for now. When stepping inside the Roxbury, my eyes are immediately drawn to the magnificently well-stocked shelves behind the bar. I slowly make my way further inside, feeling the solid foundation of the hardwood beneath my feet. There's glass enclosures in the walls, to the left and to the right, housing some of the Roxbury's most priceless treasures. William directs me to where I can set up my equipment. He takes me into a room off of the main dining area. The bottom half of the walls are what appear to be black, but are in fact what is known as Charleston Green. I'll learn this later on. The top half is white. There are several framed handcrafted silhouette cutouts gracing the walls here, varying in shape and size. The same color scheme runs throughout most of the restaurant. 
After I complete my setup, William begins telling me about the restaurant and all the little details that those with an untrained eye, much like myself, would quickly dismiss as nothing more than decoration. He points out the bar and fills me in on the details of how the bar itself came to be. William explains that the wood that was used to build the bar came from a good friend of his that owns a modified pontoon boat, which he uses to haul up submerged lumber from the murky depths of the Edisto River. He dives for the trees, hauls them up, and once acquired, he uses the lumber to build furniture amongst other things. According to William's friend, he believes the tree to be more than a thousand years old and has just been waiting to be refurbished as the Roxbury's beautifully handcrafted bar. The Roxbury Merchantile on which we now stand is not the original. The current Roxbury sits almost in the same spot as its predecessor. The original Roxbury was a place that sold an assortment of goods and one of the few local spots in the area to grab some good food or a nice cold beer after a hard day's work. Unfortunately, the original burned to the ground sometime in the early 80s. The ground lay untouched for nearly 30 years until 2012 when local shrimp boat captain Jimmy Bell built the structure that now sits on the property and opened his very own restaurant. Then in 2018, William and Jackie opened the new Roxbury Merchantile. William and Jackie have done an absolute phenomenal job of retaining the simple yet effective standards and values William's grandparents embedded in the original Roxbury. The hospitality along with the pleasantries that are found here are a deeply rooted link to the past, and it shows as soon as you step foot in the door. You're instantly transported to a more simple time and place where a smile, handshake, or a friendly hello was worth more than a dollar. This concept seems to be lost on some nowadays, sadly enough. William asked me what I'll have to drink. I posed the question, is it ever really too early to start? William replies with a resounding, not for me. Jackie, who is busy with the task before her, offers this nugget of advice. It's like Jimmy Buffett says, it's five o'clock somewhere. I concur, Jackie. Even though we're not physically on Edisto Island, we're close enough to feel the island's presence, and that's close enough for me. We're officially on island time now. William works his magic and crafts an old-fashioned for me using Knob Creek 9-year 100 proof. Plenty enough bite. He grabs a nip of tequila for himself, and we both settle in to our seats a great conversation. Welcome to the show, William. Thank you. It's good to have you here. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. So first of all, maybe you could help settle a debate between me and my wife. Is it mercantile or merchantile? <laughs> mercantile. No H. I've been proven it's, wrong again. It's, it's ironic. We actually had to purchase the web domain for M-E-R-C-H, <laughs> just because we had so many people misspelling it. The state of South Carolina even misspelled it on our uh, wow. business license when we first got incorporated. So, yeah, it's uh, Mercantile. Mercantile. My apologies, ladies and gentlemen. We are at the Roxbury Mercantile. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and start off with a few icebreakers, uh, kind of get things rolling. But Dukes or Hellman's? Oh, my goodness. Dukes, of course. We, we buy it by the... Massive caseloads. There you go. Plural. I always tell people you can't go wrong with Dukes. Cornbread or biscuits? 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we will accept that answer. Biscuits for breakfast, cornbread for dinner. Let's, <laughs> let's go with that. Absolutely. All right, so vinegar, mustard, or ketchup-based barbecue sauce? Oh, my. Uh, again, yes. It uh, <laughs> depends on the context. I'm, I really enjoy all three. We make our own mustard and vinegar barbecue sauces in-house. I guess if I had to go with one, it's uh, mustard. Yeah, I, I'm, I lean toward the more acidic barbecue mm-hmm. sauces myself. Uh, all right, Carolina or Clemson? Oh, Clemson. Now, I, I have to uh, preface this by saying... Uh, Roxbury is a house divided. <laughs> uh, my wife's a Carolina fan. Her sister went to Carolina. But uh, my family is, is Clemson three, four generations in. So. so tell our listeners, as well as myself, where you're from and uh, where were you born and raised and what was life like growing up there? So this is an interesting story. Uh, from right here, uh, Roxbury is our family farm, uh, four generations now. But my father was in the military, so I was born in Kansas, uh, moved all around the world growing up, uh, but this place right here has always been home. Uh, the Tugadoo River right across you know, the street from us right. uh, is pretty much where I grew up. Was there ever a favorite meal growing up in your home, a specific dinner that maybe you'd look forward to? Shrimp Creole. Shrimp uh, Creole. Yeah, it's interesting. My grandmother would make a, a shrimp Creole. Uh, it was a little bit different every time she made it, and uh, sometimes it would be served over rice, and that would be dinner. Sometimes it was over grits, and that was breakfast. Our shrimp and grits here at Roxbury is that same shrimp creole recipe. Awesome. Uh, very unique take on shrimp and grits, I guess. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was one of my favorite things to eat growing up. That was actually one of my questions later on is, did any of your family recipes actually make it into the menu? Oh, Yes. Who would you say is that one person that helped shape your view of food or mold your palate? Uh, my grandmother, for sure. Um, just, just growing up, it was, again, unique where we are. Uh, maybe not so unique back then, but I think unique these days. Uh, our cousins were farmers. You know, My grandfather ran the old country store that was here, but he also fished. So everybody would kind of get together, um, passing through and, and drop off vegetables and pick up fish. And everybody kind of, it was a co-op before there was such a thing as a co-op. Right. It was a community. And uh, so seeing these things coming and going and, you know, whether it's picking crabs, which to this day I can't stand to pick crabs <laughs> because as a little kid, that's what you had to do. Right. Um, but, uh, but getting fresh vegetables and it's, it's whatever came in is what you cooked with. That's, I kind of right. alluded to that earlier that. You know, the yeah. shrimp creole was different every time we had it because it was cooked with whatever, whatever you had. If okra was in season, there was okra in it. Awesome. But yeah, her her cooking style was very uh, very loose. Uh, there weren't really any recipes per se. Yeah, right. Um, although she had quite a few written down, I don't know that she ever <laughs> looked at them. Uh, but it was she was definitely the biggest influence on on how I cook, uh, and in terms of where I was trained, it was at her feet. Um, yeah, that's one thing about grandmas. They, they never seem to have any teaspoons or tablespoons laying around, no measuring yeah. cups or, you know, every now and again, you might come across a, a, a chicken scratched handwriting, uh, <laughs> yeah. recipe card somewhere, but, uh, it was always, you know, right up here, you know, they, they knew it by heart really. It was a, a pinch of this and a punch of that and a taste here and adjust there. And exactly. Yeah. And, uh, even I've even had it you know, experience where someone has tried to recreate the recipe and the person 
who is passing along the information. They're the ones that, that are, that's known for the recipe, and they'll write it down, precise instructions, and something they did, yep. whether they realized it or not, somewhere along the way was just a hair off, just a little bit different, and it didn't matter how many times you tried to recreate it, you could never get it the way they made it. Oh, sure. Now that's... So, we we call it love. That's secret right. the secret right. the secret recipe is uh, the secret ingredient is love. Okay, good. I can write that. <laughs> He's absolutely right. The secret ingredient is love, and it shows in every dish that the Roxbury Mercantile prepares. Mentioned earlier, those glass enclosures when you walk into the front door of the Roxbury, they're filled with glasses, bottles, papers, pictures, newspaper articles of memories from the original Roxbury. William takes me over and shows me a ledger, a receipt of sorts, from where his grandfather had actually purchased some shrimp. And there lies his grandfather's name right there on the ledger. So yes, the secret ingredient is most definitely love. That's when William says something profound, something that absolutely sticks with me. Everything in here has a story, and there's a story behind everything. So how and when did you first enter the food industry? My first job was at McDonald's. So that's, I guess that's technically uh, where I entered the food industry. Um, had a couple of jobs up through the beginning of college before I realized I couldn't afford college and decided to pursue other paths. That was, that was it. It wasn't, I did not have a lot of careers or a lot of jobs in the food industry. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, uh, she started off very young as a as a busser and worked her way all the way up to to management at at some notable uh, local restaurants. So she has the sort of the uh, the business experience between right. the two of us. Uh, my my role tends to be a little more, I guess, on the creative side. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't have formal training uh, other than you know, like I said before, I just cook a lot. So, in fact, Roxbury's menu, uh, the one thing that we were in complete agreement on was our menu was going to be the type of food we would serve to friends and family who came over. And that's literally the basis of our menu. As Hannah Raskin would say, if you're coming to to Roxbury Mercantile for culinary epiphanies, you might want to think twice. Um, But it's just good old fashioned, you know, southern home cooking. I agree. Um, the food here is wonderful. Um, I've been here a handful of times, and it, you know, every time it, I come back, it just, it's reminiscent of, you know, a home-cooked meal. All right, so where we sit now is, of course, not the original Roxbury Mercantile. Correct. Can you tell us the story behind the Roxbury bringing us up to present day? Roxbury was established in the 1920s. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the Mercantile was. Uh, as I mentioned before, Roxbury is our family farm for generations, going back right around the turn of the century, around the early 1900s. Uh, they built the old country store that was there, uh, became the mercantile, and it existed to support the farming communities in the area. Back in the day, there were a series of old country stores every six miles or so, which is about as far as you, you, know, you wanted to go on a horse before you were tired of going. That's where the local mail was delivered, so people would pick up their mail there. It's where... All your supplies were acquired. It's where all the, the gentlemen retired at the end of the day to swap fishing stories and right. farming stories over a, an ice-cold beer. Uh, that was Roxbury Mercantile from about the 1920s all the way up through uh, the 80s. Uh, 
the original building unfortunately burned down. The oak tree that's right outside this window behind us actually still bears the scars uh, from the fire that claimed the building. So it's uh, so we're we're right here. As I said, my dad was in the military, so coming home, uh, the first stop for everybody coming back home in this area uh, was to stop into the the old country store and uh, you know walk across those wooden planks and just, that's that's when you knew you were home. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to find out more about the Roxbury Mercantile, you can find them on Instagram at Roxbury Mercantile or check them out on their website at RoxburyMercantile.com. Now, remember those handcrafted silhouette cutouts I mentioned earlier? Well, I'm about to get a history lesson on how they came to be. Yeah, the, the artist is Carew Rice. He's a, I would say, local famous uh, silhouette artist, lived up through, I think, the 1970s. Uh, but he lived out near Walterboro in Green Pond, uh, but was kind of known as a gypsy, kind of traveled around. Uh, most people who are local to this area have had their silhouettes cut by Carew Rice at one right. time or another, uh, if you're sort of of a certain age. He would stay with different people along his travels. And so when he would stay you know, in this area, he would stay with my grandparents. So you can tell when he stayed because there's uh, collections from certain dates. I'm guessing he would maybe trade some of his artwork for room and board right. uh, was the story that was passed along to me. But yeah, we're, uh, we're very blessed to have kind of a large collection of Crew Rice's artwork. And so when it came time to do this room, you know, the kind of black and white or Charleston green and white is really what it is. It, it comes off black, but it's Charleston green is the uh, the color scheme for the restaurant, which were the same colors that you would have found in the original country store. So that's I have no no original ideas here. It's all <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's it's, it's interesting, you know, and, and like me and you were talking earlier, everything here has a story to does. tell. I myself have never actually heard of Crew Rice, but. Now I know who he is. The Roxbury once again bears its rich history. The stuff practically oozes out the walls. It seems to be laced in every splinter of wood, every hand-driven nail, every drink poured, and every meal served. And as I'll soon find out, it has a few surprises as well. What's some of your most popular menu items? Oh, wow. So... Ironically, uh, the one that isn't a family recipe or isn't necessarily a family recipe, the, uh, the shrimp tacos. Shrimp tacos are one of my favorite things to eat. Um, and so that's kind of the one thing that when we started brainstorming, you know, what if with this idea of Roxbury Mercantile, I, I, Captain Jimmy Bell, we mentioned this before, right. uh, local shrimp boat captain. Uh, the original building burned down. We sold the two acres on the corner to a local shrimp boat captain named Jimmy Bell. He built this building uh, and operated as a restaurant, as a market for his seafood. I remember writing down, my, my wife and I were talking one day, and I was just kind of brainstorming ideas. I, I'm a doodler, and I wrote Captain Jimmy Bell's question mark and wrote shrimp tacos. <laughs> <laughs> so from the, the very genesis of the idea of, of buying back the two acres and buying uh, Jimmy Bell's uh, building and restaurant, mm -hmm. Uh, shrimp tacos were, were going to be on the menu. That has actually turned out to be one of the most popular things on the menu. 
it's not totally uh, uh, new. The recipe for the fried shrimp that we use uh, borrows heavily from the old Edisto Motel restaurant that was uh, across the bridge in uh, Jacksonboro. It's a, it's a cornmeal mix right. uh, in the batter. So that's, that's not new. Uh, but uh, yeah, doing it on tacos is fairly new. <laughs> and you brought up uh, Captain Jimmy Bell, and uh, like we were talking earlier, uh, I told you that uh, back in I think it was 2015, me and the wife had actually came down here, and one of the only places that was open because it was the off season at the time was Captain Jimmy Bell's. I had never entered the establishment before that day. Uh, we stopped in. Everybody was really nice. The food was really great. And I think you guys, uh, just from remembering my dining experience there, I think you guys have actually done a really great job in keeping up their tradition of food and uh, making somebody feel at home, you know, really showing them that uh, Southern hospitality. If anything, you guys have elaborated and expanded on that. And uh, I think that's one of the greatest things that uh, actually, you know, just echoes throughout the establishment here at Roxbury. Yeah, we've been blessed to have retained all of Jimmy's staff. So the, uh, they're deeply rooted. Many of them are friends. Uh, some of them are family. And they've been here for quite a while. But, but that's that concept of, of we're not so much in the restaurant business uh, as we are in the hospitality business. And so that extends you know, all the way across the board. And, and as we grow, that's kind of the, the thing that we keep in mind is, we're welcoming people to our home. Uh, Roxbury is literally our home, uh, like we've said before. But yeah, that that's kind of the key. I'm 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 glad you experienced that. In such a fast-paced modern world that we live in today, it's nice to come across that from you know from time to time, and it's getting harder and harder to find. Unfortunately, it is. So, just curious, how often does the menu change, and have you ever taken something off that customers demanded back? <laughs> You know, there's a there's a saying on on Edisto that everything is uh, Edislow. <laughs> yeah, our uh, our spring menu was uh, supposed to drop some time ago. Um, hasn't quite yet. That's that as, actually has been the challenge. We start to look at our menu and 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 so we we kind of dive into the metrics and look at okay what sells and what doesn't. Everything sells pretty much evenly, and there are some things that we do not dare take off the menu. Uh, there would be a riot, but uh, but to, to to answer your question, um, oh, hang on just a sec. No, you're good. Did you catch that? You can hear a voice in the background say "Good morning." Here, let me play it again. But uh, but to, to to answer your question, uh, almost serendipitous in nature. Hang on just a sec. The Roxbury surprises us with none other than Captain Jimmy Bell himself in the flesh. It's like we conjured him up just by speaking about him. Well, here he was. He came to drop some shrimp off to the restaurant. I stopped recording long enough for a quick hello and an even quicker photo of the captain. He's as nice as they come. Captain Bell makes his delivery and exits the restaurant almost as quick as he entered. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. Jimmy Bell, Captain Jimmy Bell, actually making his uh, debut on our podcast. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. And like uh, me and William were just sitting up here speaking about was that, uh, you know, we, we, we haven't really taken the time recently in just such a fast paced modern world that we just don't take the time to realize what's around us anymore. It, it's it's kind of disheartening to a certain degree 
just things aren't the way they used to be. Like, like we were just talking with Captain Jimmy Bell. You know, when he was younger, he used to, his dad would stop and because he was missing Scooby-Doo, you know, <laughs> you know, people would stop and talk and chat. And uh, even nowadays, you know, you ride through the country every now and again, you don't see it as much anymore. But if you knew somebody or didn't know anybody, you could be riding along a backcountry road and you'd see somebody throw their hands up at you, you know, and you don't even see that anymore. Yeah. At, at the very least, right here on Little Britain Road, I right. mean, you wave to everybody because chances were they were either your cousin or, or a close friend, even if you couldn't see who it was. Right. But uh, yeah, these days, I mean, I still wave. Before we open Roxbury, we're talking about Little Britain Road here. It's the road that we live on. Roxbury is located at the head of the road. We decided to hold a block party, my wife and I did, because we really didn't know our neighbors. Uh, we knew the ones we were related to, but but they were becoming few and far between. So we figured we'd be inviting, you know, 30, 40 people over, 75 wow. households. Households. Uh, households. I'm like, where are they up and down this road? <laughs> um, but that's, that's the thing. Uh, as these old uh, family farms, you know, are, are slowly but surely selling off, uh, divided up, you know, people are planting houses all over the place right. instead of planting farms all over the place. And uh, we don't know these neighbors. And so we've, uh, we began, this is maybe four or five years ago, uh, trying to rectify that, trying to get to know our neighbors. One of the, the big things with creating Roxbury was trying to bring back that, uh, that opportunity to sort of run into people that you haven't seen in years you know, rekindle community and rekindle friendships right. and rekindle the, the art of conversation. It's sad to say, but it is a dying art. Mm-hmm. Well, not if we can help it. <laughs> hey, we put in a fire pit just for that purpose. Hey, know? that's what they're made for. Yeah. That's exactly oh, yeah. what they're made for. And what, uh, what, what restaurant has a fire pit? Exactly. <laughs> All right. So back to the uh, question I had asked about the, uh, <laughs> um, how often does the menu change and have you ever taken something off that the customers demanded back yeah so we uh we do change the menu seasonally mm-hmm. um there are certain things on the menu that we will only serve when they're in season and we can get them locally uh, collard greens are a great example right now uh my cousin at rooting down farms is growing collard greens mm-hmm. and as long as he has them they'll be on the menu uh, the moment he doesn't, they're coming off the menu, and it will not go over well. <laughs> fried okra is another thing. that Fried okra will probably replace it, and you know people will be glad to see it back. Uh, the moment it's no longer being harvested, it'll be gone, so, and we'll hear about it. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's, th- those, are, those sort of seasonal things are the big ones uh, that change a good bit. Uh, we've right. contemplated adding other things to the menu just, again, seasonally, but uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. I don't really like the term farm to table. We we kind of do that here, but um, the menu is what it is, and it's it's what we, frankly, it's what we feel like serving right. uh, to some extent. We just added brunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some things on that brunch menu that you know will get rotated out. There's some that we might not be able to, but uh, but yeah, you know, that's if, if we may add things, uh, pulling things away uh, is a little bit more difficult. Understood. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You mentioned that you guys don't really use the term farm to table. Just growing up, I always just knew it as supper. Sure. Or dinner. Oh, absolutely. Or lunch or whatever. It was whatever mama was cooking, you mm-hmm. know. 
she's been one of the biggest inspirations in my life as far as food goes, and that's where my love of food and cooking actually comes from. It's funny because I've actually made dishes before in the past, and I've shared them with friends, somebody who's not necessarily from so far south. Right. And they rave over it. And like, I think it goes back to what we were saying a minute ago, you know, everybody's in such a fast paced world, you know, they, they know what a happy meal is. They know mm-hmm. what, you know, a fast value meal is, you know, but they don't know what it's actually like to actually eat home cooked food. That's the thing is, is, uh, to me, food should be, I don't know, there, there's a time and place for something special, but generally speaking, our food is really uncomplicated, right? Uh, it is, it's, it's just the essential elements. It's, you know, here's a great collard greens is a great example. You know, here's, we start off with the best collard greens that we can get. They're the only ones that we're going to use. We add just a few ingredients to it to accentuate the flavor of the collards, not to change it. Um, and, and that's it. We let it ride. And I think we're better for it. Our, our beef, uh, we don't do anything unusual with our beef. Uh, but there's a rancher on the North Carolina, South Carolina border. Grasstown uh, is the uh, the ranch, mm-hmm. and the beef that they put out, grass-fed beef, is phenomenal. You a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper to make it pop, and that's it. Throw it on the grill and cook it up, and man, that it makes a really, really good burger. But that's what it, what it is. It's starting with you know knowing where your food's coming from, and uh, and the people that are involved in it, and uh, and respecting that, and not. I think going overboard with trying to dress it up. But again, there's a time and place. Uh, you know, I actually had a supervisor years ago tell me, he said, always remember KISS, K-I-S-S. I said, yeah. what is that? He said, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> you know, and, and that's yep. usually the best way, you know, let the meat do the talking. But, you know, give it a little bit of something, like you said, to sure. make it pop. But other than that, it doesn't yeah. need much else. Oh, man, our, our grits, we, we get asked all the time about our grits. These are kind of undercooked. No, they're not. They're grits. <laughs> there's butter in them, a little bit of butter, there's a little bit of salt and water, and that's it. I agree. And uh, man, they are delicious. But if you're used to eating cream of wheat, they're going to be kind of jarring. Uh, not to mention anything instant. Sure. So, uh, oh yeah. To me, just to me myself, but that's a that's a good meal in itself. Is just taking uh, slow cooking grits. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, let them cook for. 45 minutes sure get the stone ground grits and just let yep. that the water do its work look at them just wonderful you're sitting there stirring them and you can feel them when they change here we go again we're talking ourselves hungry yeah there you go because <laughs> uh, i in my opinion there's nothing better than a bowl of grits country ham and red eye gravy oh yeah you, absolutely to me that's just a quintessential meal you boiled some grits you added some water maybe a touch of, of butter some salt some pepper and then on top of that you cook the ham, and then you added a pot of coffee. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And you're like, I didn't do anything extravagant. There's but nothing. It's, be, it's in, become so rare these days. That exactly. It's, it's something special. We discussed this earlier as well, but one thing that catches my eye when I first looked at your website, as well as immediately walking in the door, was the impressive uh, collection of whiskey, bourbon, uh, among, <laughs> <laughs> among other libations. Rum, of tequila. Absolutely. Yeah. Not so, a lot of vodka, but hey. <laughs> that's right. And uh, I think me and you had actually discussed this earlier, but some of which are very hard to find now considering yeah. the most recent uh, bourbon and whiskey boom. Oh, my but, goodness, uh, yeah. Is that collection one of uh, personal taste or crowd favorites? It really is all me, uh, you know. I hate, hate to say that, but uh, so people walk in and they're blown away by it. And we do have some guests who come here. They just can't wait to, to try this and try that. And, right. 
So my, my philosophy with all of these spirits, but particularly bourbon, because we're in the middle of a bourbon boom right now, absolutely, uh, is they're meant to be drunk. Uh, they're meant to be shared. They're meant to be enjoyed. So I, I do spend probably too much time hunting down some of these things and uh, made doubly difficult by the laws in South Carolina. Right. So you have, to, you have to get them legally, which is a challenge. Uh, but finding... I found a couple of places, uh, liquor stores that, that are willing to help us out that kind of share the same feelings that we do is these things are not meant to be packed away in crates and in the back of a closet saved for God only knows when they're meant to be opened and enjoyed. Absolutely. So we, we do, we open everything that we get and everything that we get goes behind the bar and anybody can try it. Definitely have a, uh, passion for many things, uh, but, but spirits are one of them for sure. And guys, I promise you, he makes a killer old fashioned. So what is your personal favorite dish from the Roxbury menu? Uh, I love the Sea Island red peas. Uh, it's uh, Interestingly enough, it's a vegetarian dish. Mm-hmm. Um, decidedly not vegetarian. It just, for something as, as sort of humble as a pea, uh, to have so much flavor packed in it, they're, they're a joy to cook, you know, a joy to eat. My favorite things on the menu rotate, obviously, depending on what I'm in the mood for. But if... Uh, I can't figure out what I want to eat. I just get a spoon spoonful of grits and throw some red peas over the top of it, and that's dinner. Can't go wrong with it. So, uh, of course, we're all we've all been experiencing the pandemic. But uh, mm. how has the pandemic shaped the way you guys do business? Um, is there anything that really has significantly changed? Has it changed for the worst? Has it changed for the better? We're blessed that we sit on two acres. My wife and I are both planners. Mm-hmm. So in the back of our heads, uh, and even on paper, uh, we had already planned on expanding and building a patio and, and doing a bunch of other things. Uh, so we had all these things in our hip pocket. We just didn't have time to deal with them. Yeah, COVID was devastating for the first few months. Uh, we ramped up for a big St. Patrick's Day, and we shut down on St. Patrick's uh, a year ago. But we, but we also were able to pivot. Uh, we never... I say we shut down. We shut down the dining room, and the next day we converted one of our windows into a walk-up, you know, sort of not a drive-through, but you know, right. the photographs of it are are interesting to see how it how it all uh, progressed. But you know, we imme- immediately pivoted to takeout only, uh, which is a challenge because our food. I don't think our food is conducive to takeout at all. Uh, fried food tends to not carry well, unfortunately. Right. But nevertheless. Uh, people ate it up, no pun intended. And the moment we saw, or at least thought we saw, a light at the end of the tunnel, we went ahead and started working on the patio. And sure enough, the day that we broke ground on the patio was the day the governor announced that he would allow outdoor dining. And uh, so serendipity there, I guess. Yeah, the, the, the challenges are sort of many. Uh, most of our staff is young. Uh, they're in school, college, high school still. So it wasn't didn't affect them too much. The ones who sort of relied on you know us as a as a business, uh, we were able to keep them on staff. Uh, nobody got laid off per se. Right. And the community, uh, because we are very much a locals spot, the community uh, has just been huge in supporting us and supporting our staff. So very very generous in terms of of taking care of us. Yeah, we uh, like I said, we broke ground on the patio, pivoted to that outdoor dining. Um, sort of already had that in the hip pocket. And then we, we still have not, uh, as you look around us, you see about half the number of tables that fit in this room. 
Uh, same thing with the whole restaurant. We've created an environment, I think, that people feel comfortable in, and so they have responded by continuing to come visit. Mm-hmm. And so that, from that aspect, it's been, it's been very heartwarming and very good. The cost of everything has gone through the roof. Absolutely. Uh, whether it's lumber for the patio and the fence that we just put in or the cost of food. Uh, scallops have gotten so expensive that we've actually, to you know, go back to one, we actually took them off the menu. Uh, they were just, just cost prohibitive. Uh, chicken's getting that way too. Uh, we have not adjusted our menu prices because we were hoping to be on the other end of this right. uh, a year ago. <laughs> 15 days, to, <laughs> what was it, 15 days to... Uh, to flatten the curve, yeah, right. uh, yeah. The cost of labor because everything has to be done a certain way, and and we have to stretch everybody out. Uh, obviously, labor is higher. All of our cost of goods sold are higher. Um, yeah, being a profitable business in COVID, not really going to happen. Uh, but surviving has been the name of the game, Absolutely. and uh, and I think we uh, we're going to come out of this uh, on the other end of it much better off than we were going in. Do you have any post-pandemic plans? <laughs> wow, for the restaurant if, and for yeah. you personally, what's the? I mean, so we, yes, um, I don't know how many of them are worth talking about because as soon as I put it out there, I might actually have to do it. Uh, remember that whole Edislow thing? Right. We'll, we'll get around to it. <laughs> yeah, we have we have tons of plans for, and, and you can see them taking shape outside, uh, creating a building on what we have and creating an environment where families can come and let their kids run around, you know, hence the fence. Right. Um, they can relax and enjoy themselves and, and just catch up, you know. Everything that we talked about before is, right. is creating that environment to sort of, it's nostalgic, but I think it's also, uh, we need it. Uh, deep down inside, we need that connection with other people. So continuing to build this place out in a way that, promotes that connection. Uh, we get asked all the time to, to host events, and our restaurant's just not big enough to, to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not in a, in a sort of pandemic environment. We see 40-something people on a good day. Maybe expanding to the point where we can accommodate larger parties somewhere down the road. Right. Um, but yeah, we're, we're in no hurry. Uh, you know, but, but we do have our, our sort of mission in front of us, and that's helping create that sense of community and, and belonging and connection. Well, at least you know where you're going. Some people don't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a vacation would be nice, too. not going to lie. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> kind of building on that, is there any one thing that uh, you and your wife have actually missed during the whole pandemic, you oh. know, since this all started? My goodness. So traveling. Um, yeah, I mentioned it before. Um, I did... 20 years in the military and had a very unique career, both in the military and post-military. I've, I've served on all seven continents. Wow. Uh, to include Antarctica. That was, a, that was a bucket list item checked off, getting to the South Pole. Uh, but traveling is something that's always, always been a part of my life. And it's, I am anxious to travel. And my wife's the same way. We actually met uh, on a study abroad trip to Ireland the ability to, and that's, you know, it's the one thing that we always talk about is, is traveling and going places. And we've right. got, we've got a bucket list that's, uh, it's, it's Anthony Bourdain-esque. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're very much about that. 
And so that's, that's the one thing I think we miss most is just being able to travel and visit our friends. Um, she's got friends all over the country. I've got friends all over the world and just don't get to see them. And that's hard. So since you bring it up, I know you, like you said, you were in the military for 20 years and you traveled extensively during that time. And probably, of course, you you were soaking in all the cultural and cuisine at the time. So my question is, is there one place or meal that kind of sticks out in your mind that you you had that maybe either inspired you or just really resonates with you? There are there are many. Uh, There are many. I mean, I could I lived in Korea for a year and during that time traveled to Japan and Thailand. And there's so many things I soaked in from there. Wow. The one that pops into my mind immediately, it's maybe because we're just past St. Patrick's Day. And I just mentioned the trip to Ireland with my wife. But um, so we went to to Ireland. And just to give you an idea of kind of how our brains work, you know, you're in a sort of touristy town and everybody in our group wanted to go to a, a pub, you know, and so we see one and it's, it's very fancy, very clean. It's got a Coors Light, you know, <laughs> neon sign in the window. And everybody's like, oh, let's go. And I look at this dark alley, and I'm like, no, I'm going that way. <laughs> and my wife, we, we were barely friends at the time. We just met. And uh, she's like, yeah, let's go. And so we take off down this dark alley. You know, the pavement turns to cobblestones, and the ceiling gets, you know, low to the point where you can reach up to it, and there's this creaky little door. And so we duck into this really dark, dank, hub and uh, everybody just kind of stops and looks at us and it's like this is where we belong (laughs) and uh yeah so while we were there i had an irish coffee for the first time i'm i'm a bit of a coffee snob and i don't like anything in my coffee i drink i drink black coffee but uh when in ireland you know you try an irish coffee the ones you have in the states are very sickly sweet you know maybe some canned whipped cream over the top they're they're disgusting um had a real legit Irish coffee uh, while I was over there, and it was it was a game changer in terms of 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 me and opening my mind just a little bit uh, to putting things in my coffee. But yeah, so we actually took that recipe for Irish coffee exact. I just studied the exact way they made everything on that thing, and uh, yeah, uh, our Irish coffee is is straight out of that that trip. So one one little bit of culinary inspiration, but. Now, there are a lot of things that I would love to bring in here that doesn't really fit our concept. Right. Uh, you know, just there's food from South America that, you know, I think the way that they cook down there is just mind blowing. Right. And I would love to go back and explore it some more in the context of now owning a restaurant and, you know, being a cook in a restaurant because uh, it's, it's different uh, working in restaurants than it is just cooking in terms of volume and, and what, you know, you have in front of you. But, uh, yeah, so many inspirations. Uh, some of the best meals that I've ever had, though, I think were over in South Korea. Uh, That's awesome. Seoul, South Korea, I think it's the third largest city in the mm-hmm. world. Some of the French restaurants that are there are, I mean, I've been to France, but mm-hmm. some fantastic food there. I've been to Turkey. There was a Turkish guy, Mr. Kebab, uh, who had some of the best Turkish food that you've ever had. You know, having my mind open, and then of course Korean cuisine is fantastic, and Vietnamese food. If you've ever had noodles, you know noodle bowls are just that's that's the kind of thing that, man, talking about food, I'm hungry and I'm ready to travel. (laughs) (laughs) If you were given the opportunity to host a dinner for anyone living, deceased, fictional or otherwise, 
Who would it be? What would you serve and why? Wow. Yeah, I mean, the, there's so many names that pop into my head. I would love to have my grandparents come back and just sit down around one of these tables in here and just let them see what we've done. I think that would be it. Uh, it'd be cool if Anthony Bourdain showed up. <laughs> and what would you serve? Probably just shrimp and grits. <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. Something simple. Oh, and, then, and, and with a side of collard greens. Yeah. Go. yeah, that would make everybody's heart happy. After our interview, William makes one of the signature drinks known as a Lost in Translation, named after the Bill Murray movie, which is fitting. The drink is made with Suntory Japanese whiskey, honey ginger syrup, fresh lemon juice, and candied ginger. Trust me when I tell you that it's nothing short of spectacular. The ingredients blend harmoniously together like a church choir that's been together for a really long time. The concoction is indeed perennial, working most any time of the year. While I enjoy my drink, William emerges from the kitchen bearing shrimp and grits, as well as a small side of grits topped with sea island red peas, a favorite of his as he mentioned earlier. As I have not had breakfast yet, I immediately dig in. I transcend to low country heaven at first bite. The yellow grits are the velvety smooth base that hold the entire dish together. The creaminess of the grits dance with the slight smoke from the shrimp, the richness from the tomatoes, and the zingful crunch of the green peppers. And the savory spice of the andouille sausage is the tune that everything else keeps rhythm to. The dish is reminiscent of home, more specifically, my mother's tomatoes and rice. I mentioned this to William, and he smiles and shakes his head in approval of the comment. I dig into the Sea Island red peas, which are a joy to eat. They pop in flavorful bursts in your mouth, which accentuate the grit's flavor profile overall. Anthony Bourdain once said, Food is everything we are. It's an extension of nationalist feeling, ethnic feeling, your personal history, your province, your region, your tribe, your grandma. It's inseparable from those from the get-go. The original Roxbury Mercantile set the bar for this tone. Jackie and Bo have raised this by an entire octave. Bo's grandparents would most definitely be proud of their accomplishments and how they've managed to embrace their past to ensure their future. So the next time you're making your way through the low country of South Carolina, be sure to stop in and see my good friends, Bo and Jackie, at the Roxbury Mercantile. You may step in the door as a stranger, but you'll certainly feel like family when you leave. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Southern Spoonful podcast. My name is Jeremy Hudson, and I've been your host. Be sure to follow the Southern Spoonful podcast on Instagram for behind-the-scenes photos and the latest news with the show. You can find us at the Southern Spoonful podcast. Until next time, everyone.